Welcome to this Pure Voice on-demand activity based on a recent event. At any time during this video-based activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Good morning, and thank you all for attending this symposium uh, uh, today. And um, my name is Barry Byrne. I'm going to chair this panel, and uh, we really have a great uh, treat in store for you as well as the participants remotely who are attending this uh, CME event. Um, so the, the title of the symposium is Individualized Enzyme Replacement Therapy in Patients uh, Living with Pompeii Disease. So just a bit of background, especially for our CME audience, because um, the topic has been so well addressed during the course of this meeting. To, to reiterate uh, some of the aspects of the pathophysiology of Pompeii disease. So we know this is a recessive condition um, due to alpha-glucosidase deficiency that um, leads to impaired glycogen metabolism. So it really is a, a metabolic disease that affects many compartments. Uh, in, and because of the cytoplasmic accumulation of, of the content of glycogen ultimately reaches lysosomes where it's not degraded. And uh, this leads to autophagy and cellular dysfunction, particularly in striated and smooth muscle, and striated muscle also including cardiac muscle, and, um, and the neuropathic pathologic aspects where, in which there are CNS manifestations because of motor neuron accumulation of glycogen. So in late onset Pompeii disease, um, it's it now evolving concept because of the advent of newborn screening. And uh, this is really characterized by, let's say, a later age of presentation. Um, and anywhere from one year of age into adulthood. And this chronic uh, course of this disease does impact uh, motor ability and uh, predominantly can be identified often through respiratory insufficiency. Um, the features, as uh, Paul will discuss his own journey, um, do result in fatigue, myalgia, and exercise intolerance. Uh, sometimes patients are identified through laboratory findings like hyperCKemia or even incidental findings of elevated transaminases. And that ultimately leads to weakness, uh, respiratory insufficiency, and this we think of as a clinical presentation triangle. So with that little bit of background, I'm gonna hand over to uh, Paul McIntosh, a neuromuscular fellow at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, and, and he'll share his experience with Pompeii as a patient and delve into how LOPD affects his day-to-day -day living. Thanks for being here, Paul. All right, and uh, thank you, Dr. Byrne, for your kind introduction. Again, my name is Paul McIntosh. I'm a neuromuscular fellow at Mass General Brigham in Boston, Massachusetts. And today I'm here to share uh, my story and perspective as a patient. So I was diagnosed with late onset Pompeii disease at age 21. I initially presented to medical attention due to elevated AST and ALT levels. After serial assessments, these levels stayed elevated over time. Therefore, I had a full liver workup, which included a liver ultrasound, a CT scan, and a liver biopsy. I was then referred to a liver specialist, and she checked a CK level, which returned elevated around 1,400. She then referred me to a neuromuscular neurologist, 
he identified mild proximal weakness on exam, and he performed an EMG study, which was abnormal. It was notable for myotonic discharges in my lumbar paraspinals. And this uh, very smart neuromuscular physician thought about Pompeii disease, so he sent a GAA enzyme assay, which returned with low enzyme activity, and then he sent genetic testing, which confirmed the diagnosis. My major symptoms at the time were constant lower back pain and fatigue. As mentioned, I had mild proximal weakness on exam that thankfully did not yet impact my day-to-day -day life. I had and continued to have um, gastrointestinal symptoms, particularly uh, loose stools, and this very well may be related to smooth muscle involvement in Pompeii disease based on some recent literature. As a patient, it is important to know what medical therapies there are available to treat my condition and what I can do myself to manage, or in other words, fight Pompeii disease. Regarding medical therapy, I've been on enzyme replacement therapy since February of 2013. Um, however, I've also found that education on diet, submaximal exercise and stretching, and the encouragement to pursue these therapeutic modalities have been beneficial. Uh, knowledge about this can empower me and other patients to take control of our health. And lastly, uh, being diagnosed with a rare disease can be very isolating. Uh, and for me, forming relationships with the Pompeii disease community was therapeutic, as I knew I was not alone. I'm extremely thankful to have been diagnosed with Pompeii disease before proximal extremity or diaphragmatic weakness limited my activities of daily living, especially since there is an enzyme replacement therapy available. With enzyme replacement therapy and focusing on a lower carb diet and exercise, I've had improvement or stabilization in various aspects of my disease. I went from having constant lower back pain to now only having mild transient lower back pain in certain scenarios. For example, if I sit in a seat without back support. It's a little bit harder for me to comment on fatigue. I'm much less fatigued now than I've been in prior years. That's confounded by the fact that the prior four years I was in a rigorous uh, neurology residency program. Uh, my gastrointestinal symptoms, uh, however, do continue to persist. Regarding data from assessments, the proximal weakness that uh, was identified on examination has improved, and my six-minute walk tests and pulmonary functioning tests have largely remained stable over time. Although I was diagnosed with fairly limited symptoms, monitoring disease progression with repeated assessments is vital. The disease progresses over time, and knowledge of the optimal treatment strategies can evolve with more experience with therapies such as enzyme replacement therapy. Emerging therapies may have better evidence for slowing the progression or be associated with a clinical meaningful improvement in uh, particular aspects of the disease. For example, if my ventilatory function became the uh, major factor limiting my quality of life, I'd, I would appreciate having a discussion with my physician on which uh, therapies have the best evidence of improving pulmonary functioning tests. Likewise, if, in, if I developed increased difficulty with ambulation, then having more of an emphasis on physical therapy for fall prevention um, and uh, talking to my physician about which therapies have more data on uh, improving six-minute walk tests would be much appreciated. 
Additionally, the mode of medication delivery and dosing frequency can greatly impact quality of life. Thankfully, I have good veins, um, so having repeated peripheral IV placements is not very problematic for me, but for many patients, that can be a major uh, nuisance. I currently receive enzyme placement therapy every two weeks. Um, and it honestly can be quite a hassle in terms of trying to schedule it. I have to schedule it around work, uh, other plans, vacations, and the like. So it can be quite a hassle. So in summary, early diagnosis of Pompe disease is critical as there is approved medical therapy for the condition. Various disease manifestations can impact patients' quality of life differently. So I encourage providers to listen to their patients. I also encourage providers to empower and guide your patients uh, with respect to diet and exercise, approved medical therapies, and emerging therapies. And remember, together we are strong. And before I end, I'd just like to thank the physician who diagnosed me, my current physician, and all the physicians and researchers who are working to improve the care of patients with late onset Pompeii disease. And I wanted to end with a few thoughts. Being diagnosed with a rare condition can be isolating, and physicians have the opportunity to make the patient feel supported. And being diagnosed with a progressive disease can create a fear of the future, and therapeutic options can give the patient hope. Thank you. Welcome to this Peer Voice On Demand activity based on a recent event. At any time during this video-based activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. I'm going to cover a few aspects about uh, late-onset Pompeii and how it's heterogeneous, uh, ultimately progressive, and really a multi-system disorder that really requires multidisciplinary care. Um, we know this is a rare condition, although we're learning more from efforts at newborn screening, and I'll, I'll touch on that. But um, of course, it's important to understand the pathophysiology based on the genetic cause, and having a biallelic mutations in the alpha-glucosidase gene are a key part of the diagnostic journey for patients now, particularly with the advent of more access to, to genetic and genomic information. And this is a, not, not only in newborns, we call attention to the fact that even in pregnancy planning, um, there's now a screening through the Horizon screen and others that al allow identification of carrier status uh, and then partner screening could help identify those uh, at risk. And then um, we know that at least one of the strong motivators for, for newborn screening is the opportunity to intervene in infants who have the severe early onset um, disease, and that, that we define really that that presents an in infancy with the classic cardiomyopathy um, or symptom onset under a year of age would be called infantile onset disease uh, in the first few months of life. And that late onset disease or juvenile onset, uh, as well as adult onset, can present at, at any age from one year even into the sixth decade. Um, I, I had the opportunity to meet a transatlantic pilot who um, had uh, the typical IBS1 mutation that worked for 60 years as a pilot before. Um, uh, 40 years as a pilot till he was 60 years old uh, before he was diagnosed. 
So uh, many opportunities to people to live a, a, a happy and productive life. But the um, progressive uh, proximal uh, myopathy and particularly the respiratory involvement do, do present challenges for, for, for individuals with Pompeii and that, that progressive weakness uh, can be fatal. So we really need to understand that and on how to address it uh, prospectively in patients, particularly with the opportunity for early diagnosis. And we know that many population-based studies have, have um, given us some guidance about the frequency, but when a newborn screening comes into play, we find that there are a significant portion of patients who might not have been diagnosed clinically can be identified through, through mutational analysis after um, primary first-tier screening with enzyme activity. So how is this heterogeneous progressive disease uh, characterized, and how do we address the multi-systemic nature of it? And um, you know, consider both children and adults can have a steady progression of the respiratory and skeletal muscle, uh, their function, that leads to, particularly during sleep, uh, respiratory insufficiency. And there are many reasons for that uh, to, to be manifest, mostly during sleep, because of the natural suppression of lower motor neuron tone during sleep, uh, as well as just being supine, uh, affects diaphragmatic and chest wall uh, movement. Um, as Paul pointed out, there can be gastrointestinal symptoms that are related to both um, the, the process of, of chewing food and many adult onset patients uh, claim that they they have delays in, in eating or it's, they have a longer time to eat. They may have poor weight gain as a result of that. And then also uh, swallowing difficulties related to the lingual weakness as well as esophageal dysfunction. Um, in the rest of the musculature, there's predominantly proximal muscle weakness as a hallmark, but um, increasingly, I think, there's a recognition that some myalgia is a constant and does influence quality of life in patients. And then there's the risk of falls and fractures that have to be uh, kept in mind because those uh, that do start to progressively lose ambulation have, have low bone density. Uh, this can be studied in many ways and there are very high, highly useful imaging biomarkers for the skeletal muscle involvement. And of course, the cardiac aspects are less common in adults. It's not entirely true to say it's absent, uh, but um, this requires monitoring, especially in patients who may not have adequate support of ventilation at night. There can be effects on right heart function that, that uh, warrant monitoring. So just to uh, think about the uh, unaffected physiology versus the pathophysiology in Pompeii, um, it really require that this um, the, that the enzyme alpha glucosidase works in the acidic pH of the lysosome to cleave branched glycogen into free glucose, which is metabolized. And in the absence of that, there are only partial degradation of glycogen, um, which ultimately affects muscle fibers with concretions of autophagic material, and that affect muscle shortening, and and this also affects. Um, uh, the neuronal firing, uh, and in the IOPD population also has impact in the conduction tissue of the heart. So what are the implications uh, related to progression? And 
and how can the multidisciplinary team support the, the findings across uh, these various aspects. And certainly, since GA deficiency is the primary cause of muscle dysfunction, this is what's responsible for disease progression. So we really have to think about how is that function restored in all the appropriate tissue beds. And um, this can be influenced by the fact that absence of alpha-glucosidase in, in the muscle uh, and neurons leads to reduced expression of, the, of its natural receptor on the extracellular surface because there's also that same receptor functions within the cell to target um, the protein into the lysosome. And that autophagic and endocytic dysfunction um, does affect sometimes the cell survival uh, and certainly its function. And, uh, and that's the basis for this commonality between actually other neurodegenerative diseases and Pompeii that have uh, neural as well as skeletal muscle deficits. So this has an impact on the overall quality of life because there can be uh, emotional consequences of that. As Paul mentioned, isolation is a problem when, um, when there are limitations in ability uh, to work or um, par participate in other social activities. There have been observed uh, smooth muscle dysfunction that's led to stroke, uh, intracranial aneurysms, and uh, neural deafness. Um, we mentioned a lot about the musculoskeletal and bone involvement, but there also are peripheral and autonomic nervous system dysfunction, which um, can contribute to this pain um, and also possibly the GI and urinary symptoms related to autonomic nervous dysfunction. And then a really important part that has now come to light is also the smooth muscle dysfunction within the vasculature. This can lead to hypertension uh, that is common in the IOPD population and, and dilatation of particularly the cerebral uh, arterial vasculature, which is life-threatening in some cases. And then I mentioned the cardiac involvement, particularly in the adults related to rhythm disturbances. So how does the multidisciplinary care team help to manage uh, the, the patient who's at the center of that um, constellation of providers? And you can see here all of the different subspecialists that really contribute uh, in many ways to support patients in, in the management of their disease. And of course, um, that's influenced by early diagnosis because then the, the family is prepared. Uh, there's not an extended diagnostic journey for patients. And so that early diagnosis enables early treatment then. So how can we monitor uh, patients and what are the strategies to minimize disease progression? Here's a, some data uh, published in 2013 um, by the group at Duke where we can identify that children who present with symptoms and without uh, cardiomyopathy have the largest diagnostic gap, uh, 12 years, in fact, um, between symptom onset and those without cardiomyopathy to, to the time of uh, diagnosis. And um, so this is important to narrow this through awareness, uh, through appropriate um, screening, and uh, ultimately monitoring of patients in this category. And the physical findings, of course, are, 
are a hallmark of the disease, but also of many other uh, limb girdle dystrophies. And, uh, and it's important that early recognition to allow for testing of these individuals um, is important. Uh, in one uh, period, there was an opportunity to screen by genetic testing. Patients without a known genetic cause of limb girdle muscular dystrophy were found in about 9% of the time to, in fact, have Pompeii. So if these physical findings exist, um, how is then the patient best managed? So here's a um, bit complicated um, algorithm, but uh, this, this has been published and uh, is available kind of to, to study further by uh, Beth Barton, and it really relies on the utility of early and simple enzymatic assay on the synthetic substrate um, for, for alpha-glucosidase, and when one pathogenic variant is identified without another um, uh, variant of unknown significance, then there is confirmation through um, physical exam, uh, blood GA act activity testing, and then some of the biomarkers that can be used. If there are two pathogenic variants, it's a little more straightforward. It's really expected that there'll be findings in the physical domain. And then when, um, when there's no findings in the heart, which is done as an early part of screening, if this is newborn screening, um, you can then categorize the patient both based on mutational analysis and their physical findings to be expected to have later onset disease. But if there's cardiomyopathy present, then uh, they would be characterized as a classical infantile onset. So, and then back to those that have low GA activity and have no variants to, to identify, there's the possibility that there's a promoter mutation. There can be pseudodeficiency allele, which is a, um, a confounder by the fact that in the, um, a, a class of mutations that uh, do not affect the ability of that protein to cleave glycogen, but they impair its ability to cleave the synthetic substrate used in the uh, high-throughput assay. Uh, therefore, they don't actually have Pompeii. So that, that sometimes requires a very specialized workup, um, and then to reassure that patient, that family, that they have a laboratory abnormality, but not Pompeii disease. Um, and so, We'll go on to talk about how, um, when there's not DNA sequencing, um, what, what does one do? And it's not available in all parts of the world. So if there's low uh, GA activity on dried blood spot, we rely principally on biomarkers and physical exam, if that's confirmed in the whole blood. And there's cardiomyopathy, a straightforward test where really most parts of the world have either x-ray or echocardiography. Um, you can define cla uh, classical infantile onset disease. And then, and then without that, it requires then careful long-term follow-up. Um, if it's determined to have been a false positive, that's uh, someone who's not affected or is a carrier or might have uh, the pseudodeficiency allele, which is more challenging because that does require under knowing the genotype. So. Um, in the absence of DNA sequencing, it leaves some uncertainty to patients who might have the biochemical characteristics um, by the laboratory testing, but not, in fact, have the disease. So that's 
also a, a challenge to dispel the notion that there's a problem when there's not one. Um, and this, can, this happens now with increasing frequency in, in newborn screening. So just to summarize this part, um, late onset Pompeii disease is rare. It's between one in 10,000 and one in 40,000 um, prevalence. And it's um, progressive, but, um, but can affect all ages, and, and there's no gender preference. Um, the disease progression and symptoms are very variable between individuals, which of course has been challenging in the field to design studies of sufficient size to account for that variability and draw conclusions about therapeutic uh, treatment options. And um, so, but there have been advances in diagnostic testing. Um, certainly the ease now of access to genetic information, which provides a more precise ability to predict the prognosis uh, and, and lead to uh, opportunities to improve care through a multidisciplinary team um, using various forms of treatment that have altered the life of patients with Pompeii and that ultimately if we as providers can be coordinated in our care and optimize treatment, this will increase survival and improve quality of life. Um, so. Um, I'll, I'll end there and allow Dr. Schozer, who's participating remotely, to uh, deliver this pre-recorded message, and then he will be available for the Q&A. So thank you. Welcome to this Peer Voice On Demand activity based on a recent event. At any time during this video-based activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. All right. Thanks. Barry for this very kind introduction. So my name is Benedikt Schoser. I'm a senior consultant neurologist at the Friedrich Bauer Institute in Munich. And the topic of, of my talk is the enzyme replacement th uh, therapy management in late onset pompe disease. And here I'd like to give you a bit flavor on the understanding of differences and the way to a tailored treatment for our patients. So what are our current strategies for the treatment in late onset pompe disease? We have in place since 2006 the first generation ERTs and this is of course an approved and licensed drug the alglucosidase alpha for all ages and now we are on the way to the second generation. I will show you later on data on the new enzymes. On top of this, we know something about pharmacological chaperone treatment and we are on the way for the first phase one, two studies for gene therapy in pompe disease and the different types of this under investigation. So what is the current limitation of our uh, enzyme replacement therapy we have in place? So there are two important things. The one is the impaired delivery and the other part is the suboptimal uptake of the enzyme into the cell and then the processing in the cell and the final processing in the lysosome. And here we have different items in it. It's of course something related to the anatomy, but always it's a discussion if there are blocking antibodies part of the disease, but this is hardly a topic for the late onset. And we have the issue of the stabilization of the human recombinant GAA at the neutral pH. And of course, the phosphorylation is different of the enzymes and therefore uh, the uptake is suboptimal, especially for the first generation enzyme. 
So let me review the latest data on the second generation ERT we have in hand now. So the first study I'd like to show you is the COMET study. It was a randomized double-blind multicenter phase 3 trial evaluating avaglucosidase alpha versus the standard of care in naive patients with late onset pompous disease. So finally, we could randomize by a one-to-one -one design 100 patients. 51 were assigned to the other glucosidase alpha treatment and 49 to the standard of care. And this was done over uh, 49 weeks. And finally, after 49 weeks, 95 went into the extension study period and all now under the new enzyme. If we look at the baseline characteristics, so they are very much balanced for uh, the demographics data. And of course, if you also look at the age of onset from the first symptom in the cohorts, they were very similar. And if you look at the key endpoints, the upright forced vital capacity predicted, that was 62.5 compared to 61.6 in the two cohorts and the six minute walking distance was 399 compared to 378 meters. So therefore very much balanced uh, baseline characteristics of both cohorts. And here you see the key endpoint, the change in the upright force vital capacity predicted over time. We have an increase of 2.89% after week 49 compared to 0.46% in the standard of care treatment. And if we look for the six minute walking distance data at week 49, we have a plus of 32.2 in the avaglucosidase alpha group and a plus of 2.19 in the standard of care group. Let's have a look at the safety signals. And here you see there are hardly any serious treatment emerged events and also no serious events. They were very comparable in both cohorts with even a minor uh, effect, uh, safety signal in the new enzyme compared to the standard of care enzyme. And if we look at the uh, anti-drug antibody titers, they were very balanced in both cohorts. We had only a few patients with higher antibodies, but none of them were so-called neutralizing or blocking antibodies. Let's look at the second study. It's the PROPIL study. This was an international randomized double-blind parallel group uh, phase 3 trial evaluating cipaglucosidase alpha plus microstat versus alglucosidase alpha plus placebo in pretreated and naive late-onset pompe disease patients. Here, finally, 125 uh, could be enrolled and they were randomized 2 to 1. So there were 85 assigned to cipaglucosidase alpha plus miclostat compared to 40 under the standard of care. And finally, of the first arm, they completed 80 and in the standard of care arm, uh, 37. And again, let's have a look at the baseline characteristics. You see for the demographic data, they were very comparable. And let's look at the baseline six minute walking distance. It was in the overall cohort 357.9 compared to 351 in the alglucosidase alpha group 
and the sitting forced vital capacity predicted was 70.7 compared to 69.7 in the glucosidase alpha group. And also we have some difference here because we have here two-thirds of the patient were already ERT experienced compared to one-third that was ERT naive. And here you see that the duration of the former ERT was at mean 7.5 years. And this is really long, please keep that in mind. So they were already treated for 7.5 years before they started the new enzyme. And here you see a little difference there, 346 compared to 334 meters for the six minute walking distance at baseline. And the sitting force vital capacity was 67.9 compared to 67.5 uh, in those two. And um, the additional thing you'll please have to recognize that in the ERT naive patients, we have a very high baseline for the six minute walking distance. It was 393 and 420. And for the forced vital capacity, it was 80.2 and 79.1, so nearly normal. There was no upper limit compared. In the uh, COMET study, there was an upper limit setting for the forced vital capacity predicted, but not in the BROPIL trial. And please keep that in mind if you look at now the data sets. If we look at the overall outcome in the, the total uh, cohort, you see that under cipaglucosidase alpha plus microstat, there was an improvement of 20.8 meters on week 52 compared to 7.2 meters at week 52 for standard of care. And if we look at the forced vital capacity predicted, there was uh, nearly unchanged uh, by minus 0.9 in the cipaglucosidase alpha group compared to the minus 4 in the alglucosidase alpha placebo group. If you look at the totality of the primary, secondary and pharmacodynamic endpoints, you see overall the most of the data sets are in favor of the cipaglucosidase alpha plus microstat compared to the standard of care and this is very important. It's also for the patient reported outcomes and of course also for the biomarkers, the HEX4 and the creatine kinase levels in that patients. One element I'd like to show you here from the study because that's one of the differences. If you look at the ERT experience cohort, you see after 7.5 years at the mean already treatment years, a still improvement on the cipaglucosidase alpha microstat by 16.9 meters compared to no change in the standard of care cohort. And also you see a clear stabilization of the pulmonary lung function by the predicted forced vital capacity around 0.1 compared to a minus 4 in the standard of care treatment. So this is an important result of this study. Again, if we look for the propyl safety signals, you don't see any clear difference between the new enzyme plus microstat compared to the alglucosidase alpha plus placebo in the totality of the data sets. So the treatment emerged adverse events were very similar in both cohorts and in very common things you see normally at all ERTs in all different diseases.
So what shall we do with all these new data? I'd like to summarize quickly the European EPO consortium treatment recommendations for patients with late onset pompidus disease. Of course, these are a summary of data published in 2017 in presymptomatic patients. So the first element I'd like to show you here is the monitoring. So we feel that uh, after six months and uh, every six months, the patient should be monitored for the MRC grading scale for the muscle strength. We should have data on a six minute walk and a 10 meter walking test. We need to have data on the time test. So the stand up and go test especially. And of course, the forced vital capacity in sitting and supine position in those patients. So when shall we start with the treatment? Of course, first of all, we have to have a commitment by both by the patient and the clinician that they will come and go on a regular basis on treatment. And we need to have a residual skeletal and respiratory muscle function. This is very important. So there needs to be a muscle that still can be treated. And of course, we normally say no other life-threatening illness should be there before we start with these new enzyme treatments. When should we reassess that we're doing the perfect thing for our patients? At least after two years, we should reassess completely the patient and his outcome and then add additional things. Perhaps we need then to start with a home ventilation. We need to add something else and we have to keep that in mind. And therefore we recommend to do a reassessment after two years. Are there something that would consider us to stop the treatment? If any, of course, if we have very severe infusion associated reactions that cannot be managed properly, so then we should and have to consider unfortunately to stop. A key element is, of course, if the patients don't wish any longer to stay on the treatment. So that happens sometimes in very old patients, uh, but it's very rare. Also, we have the element that there might be some patients out who do develop very high antibody titers that counteract the effect of our given ERT. So then we have to consider to stop this type of treatment. And of course, if we have new other life-threatening illness in the, the, due to the cause of the disease, then we need to consider this. So let's summarize what we have now in hand. We have three enzymes in hand and let me express my personal opinion about this. So if you have a stable disease, you can stay on the standard of care of um, alpha-glucosidase alpha. If you are new diagnosed, you should consider to start with avaglucosidase alpha. And if you are long-term under the standard of care treatment and you do decline, consider to swap over to cipaglucosidase alpha plus microstat. This of course needs to be more evidence-based. We need more long-term data and we need to have a discussion on whom to move to which treatment at which point. Let's come to the summary of my talk. Of course, we are now in a good shape to have three enzymes in place for this rare disease. And this will expand our knowledge and again expand our discussion and choice with the patients and caregivers uh, about the treatment of pompe disease. We have a great option for developing, delivering and monitoring of individualized treatment. And therefore, we need to consider how to monitoring this best and finally to improve the outcome with the individualized care for the people living with pompous disease. I do thank you for your attention and of course the paper is open for discussion.
Welcome to this Pure Voice on-demand activity based on a recent event. At any time during this video-based activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Thanks very much, Benedict, for uh, joining us in answer sessions. So, Paul, you're going to be the popular one. There are many questions that have come okay. already. And uh, the first one I'll pose to you is that, um, what is your perception of gene therapy trials for Pompa? What would motivate you to participate in one, and is, what has kept you from participating in a study thus far? Well, I would say as a patient, there's a lot of excitement in the realm of gene therapy. Um, you know, as patients, we're blessed that we already have enzyme replacement therapy, uh, but as I mentioned, it is a hassle every two weeks, some patients every one week, um, having to go to the infusion clinic or have home infusions, they can disrupt your life. So the potential for gene therapy, um, for having a one-and-done treatment, or um, at least a much more spread out treatment is you know, very intriguing and exciting. Uh, I would say one thing that pr has prevented me from being part of um, even some of the more recent enzyme replacement therapy trials, let alone gene therapy trials, was how I was really busy as a medical resident, so I wouldn't be able to uh, like leave work to get the infusion be, um, you know, monitored in a hospital setting. Uh, so kind of part of where I was at during my life, uh, and I'm sure other patients could agree that can be a big factor on whether or not you choose to participate in a trial. Um, I think definitely on the table in the future, as there's more and more evidence of the safety of gene therapy, I definitely would give it a consideration myself as I also offer it to my patients in the future. Excellent, thanks. And uh, so, so Benedict, a uh, question for you. In reviewing the APOC recommendations, uh, there was guidance for pre-symptomatic individuals. Um, are you referring to also those that with very early diagnosis or um, who had their diagnosis for some time? And in, in Europe, if they're diagnosed, they may already have symptoms because of the lesser or the absence of newborn screening. So I guess this really relates to partially to, to time of diagnosis and onset of symptoms. Yeah, Barry and all. Um, thanks. Uh, yes, uh, good evening from Munich. So this is a great question, of course. Um, Presymptomatic, so that was a term in my eyes coming from uh, the former age. So as we now have really newborn uh, screening in place, at least in the US, not as we are at the break uh, in, in Europe for, for some of the countries at least, I think this will turn around all this discussion of, about presymptomatic. Of course, we'd like to treat very early, as early as possible, because then we have the chance to omit all the disease burden at a very, very early stage. And that is so important for this long-term disease. You, you laid that out very nicely in your talk. Um, and, and that's something I can only agree with. We should start as early as possible. And now we have enhanced different types of enzymes and we start with gene therapy on top of it. We have the newborn screening in place. So this will be a very exciting future for, for the people living with pompa disease. Yeah, and maybe to amplify on that a little bit, could you comment on the notion of combination therapy um, in the context of conventional care plus other agents like gene therapy, for example? 
Yeah, so, so of course that's that will be the completely new field, the combination on what to do. So, so of course, you know, in the, the US, the Duke group did a lot of on, on Glenn Butterol on top. Uh, there's knowledge on exercise, there's growing body evidence on, on food, of nutrition, supportive uh, things. So, so we learned a lot over the past 20 years uh, about this disease, also about the, the early introduction of home ventilation if needed and the different types of it. So, so we have a lot of, of now interesting mixtures, but we need also to evaluate them in combination. And, and I think that's the time now to start really to go for that. And think about what you did with the electric stimulation. So also this is something has its place in individualized patients. So, so that's something on top. Outstanding points, and so you, you mentioned exercise as a therapeutic intervention. So there's a question for Paul um, that you meant that you you commented on submaximal exercise as part of disease management. Could you comment further on what that exercise program consists of, and how how did you come to arrive at that regimen? Um, I think it depends on the patient's baseline function or strength level. Um, thankfully, I was diagnosed before I had a lot of symptoms, so I still had good muscle function. So I, Pompeii disease definitely has given me a motivation to take care of my health, and that includes diet and exercise, or some maximal exercise. Um, that consists of cardio, and, and I do some weight training as well, but I don't ever do like uh, maximal strength. I typically do. Uh, lower weight, high repetitions, so a few sets of 10, 12, 15 repetitions as opposed to less. Um, I try to avoid eccentric um, contractions because that can contribute some to muscle breakdown. But I also try to listen to my body. If I did too much and I'm really sore the next day or two, I know I probably shouldn't do that. And one area of weakness for me is my lower back, so I am quite cautious about uh, exercising that area too much because I know I can and have in the past done too much and hurt myself. So let me follow up on that because in, in, in the years before you were diagnosed, you, you um, had plenty of physical activity, I'm sure, and you've continued that. Had you been diagnosed um, in earlier life, before 21, how would that have, have impacted your childhood development and view towards exercise? I would say that I'd hope there wouldn't be too much difference, but that would probably be a little naive or unrealistic. I'd say after I was diagnosed with Pompeii disease, um, it was easy to define myself by Pompeii disease, and it took me a, a year or more to come to terms with the diagnosis. Uh, so I would hope that if I was diagnosed um, in my adolescence, teenage years, et cetera, that I wouldn't define myself by Pompeii disease. Um, and I think for people, children, who are now diagnosed with late onset Pompeii disease very early, even newborn screening, I think uh, the parents do have an opportunity to shape the narrative and help uh, the child not be defined by Pompeii disease, but by how loved they are by their family, friends, by their hobbies, religious beliefs, things like that. Um, Hopefully, if I was diagnosed earlier, I would have, you know, continued to focus on my health. It's, it, um, when I was diagnosed with Pompeii disease, it definitely was an eye-opening experience because being a 
21-year-old kid, I thought I was, you know, Superman or indestructible. Um, but obviously, I'm not. So yeah, if you if you do your fellowship in Munich, you can go mountaineering and see the lovely background Benedict has. Yes, come over. <laughs> so um, another another uh, comment about um, really whether in your case where your providers um, are monitoring your your health and uh, and that may influence the frequency of treatment. Is there any any discussions about the value? what your current regimen is, what it might be if you had a change in any of the, um, the activities around your monitoring your current situation. In terms of Yeah, whether the frequency, frequency of treatment, for example. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, I get enzyme replacement therapy uh, once every two weeks. And I know there are some people with late onset disease who get it on a weekly basis. I think a decision to change the frequency for me, especially to increase the frequency to once a week, would depend on the benefits and the downsides. The benefits were if I were feeling weaker, having more difficulty with my activities of daily living, going to a weekly schedule hopefully would slow the progression of the disease. Um, but the downsides, there are a few. One potentially could be cost, hopefully insurance will cover it, um, but it would probably be a a little bit of a nuisance to deal with insurance with that switch. Uh, also, just the timing of the treatments. Uh, I mentioned that I already have to uh, work the treatments around my work schedule, my you know life schedule. So going from once every two weeks to once a week would um, further impact my you know day to day or my weekly uh, life. So, so the follow up to that is what would be the impact for you of shortening the duration of infusions? There was a presentation uh, earlier in the day about um, moving towards more rapid infusions, not with, not with any of the pump treatments, but would that have significant impact whether you're at home or, or at an infusion center? Uh, definitely, I, I've already worked with my physician to increase it a little bit. Um, I currently get home infusions, and I try to get them to be done after work. Uh, they take about, including reconstituting the medication, at least four hours, if not more. So I try to get them done between the hours of 5 p.m. and 9 p.m., or 6 p.m. and 10 p.m. Uh, but sometimes, if there's an issue with the treatment, the filter clogs, et cetera, like I might not go to bed till quite late in the evening, and I have work the next day. So having a shorter infusion time would just make increase the flexi flexibility all that much more, where I could spend less of my life receiving the treatment and more of my life doing the things I enjoy. Excellent. Yeah, so Paul, that, that is definitely part of a big burden you have as a patient. Uh, so the long infusion times, so that's, that's something patients report to me very frequent. All right. Well. This, uh, this has been really informative. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Benedict. And thank you all uh, in the audience for coming. And I hope you had, had a great meeting thus far and enjoying San Diego. So, and thanks to Peer Voice for helping organize this uh, symposium with the support of Amicus. So thank you all for being here. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.